Psalms chapter 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Terry. Morning, everyone. Good to have you with us this morning. Um, last month we had our ICF retreat, as was alluded to uh, in our prayer prayer time this morning. And um, during that time, we were out at Pogum's Pines, where um, we have uh, our Crossbridge retreat. Uh, we've had it there for the past two years, and we're going to have it there this year. And if you know. Uh, if you've been to one of the retreats, if you know where Pogan's Pines is, you know it's in a more rural part of New Hampshire, away from all the big cities. So being removed from the vast expanse of artificial lights that are in a city, several of our members in the evening who were at the retreat decided to go stargazing. And um, those nights the skies were pretty clear. It was very dark outside, so I, I, I didn't go, but I heard that those who went were able to identify several uh, constellations. I think uh, someone said they may have even, even seen a shooting star going by or something like that. And you know, if I had asked uh, one of these members who went stargazing uh, to write a psalm reflecting on those evenings or to write a psalm at the time they were stargazing, uh, it's quite possible they may have come up with something like the psalm that we read today. For I think it was written under similar circumstances uh, if your Bible contains this info at the beginning of the psalm, you saw that the psalm was written by David. And most scholars agree that this must have been written uh, during his earlier years in life when he would have spent lots of evenings uh, observing the night sky as a shepherd, or at least it recalls this period in David's life. And it's easy to see this when you you know look at verses like verse 3 where it says, When I consider your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Uh, but before we go uh, any deeper into the psalm, I just want to kind of recap where we've been in this series because uh, this is the last week we're going to be covering the psalms. Uh, next week we're going to be starting a three-week series to kind of prepare us for Easter, uh, which is in four Sundays from now. And, um, and so we're going to stop the psalm series today. Uh, so if you were here at the beginning of when the series started uh, back in January, uh, when I first preached on the Psalms, I mentioned that there were several types of Psalms, and um, oh, sorry. Oh, and we saw, you know, the several types of Psalms that were listed here, uh, like Thanksgiving the Psalm, there's a Lament Psalm, there's Wisdom Psalms, Kingship Psalms, Psalms of Confidence, and there's a few other more categories. Um, and through the series, we wanted to give you a sample of each genre to help you understand know the structure of the sounds, the meaning of it, how to apply it into our lives today. 
So over the uh, past few months, uh, Dr. Arthurs and I, uh, we covered nine Psalms, sorry, which are listed here, and you, you can see we, we did uh, pretty good in uh, giving you like a good representation of the different types of Psalms. We covered, uh, you know, wisdom Psalms, we covered lament Psalms, we covered kingship Psalms, we covered uh, praise and thanksgiving Psalms, we even covered the Psalm of Confession. And as we wrap up today, I think Psalm 8 is just a great psalm to end on because it, it's a great representation of the psalms as it presents you know, this great hymn of praise of the majesty and greatness of our God. And as we see in a bit, it also has some Christological uh, implications which will be shown in the New Testament. And it also incorporates the Gospel. So this is just a great sound to end on, and, and so let's dig into the sound. And so the first thing that David does declare is the greatness of our God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And by saying, O Lord, our Lord, David is not trying to be redundant. Uh, in Hebrew, he's using two different terms for Lord. The first one, uh, in all caps, Lord, in most Bibles, it refers to the Hebrew term Yahweh. And this is the name that God gave to himself in Exodus 3 during the burning bush encounter with Moses. If you remember, you know, uh, you know uh, God presents himself to Moses through the burning bush and tells Moses that he's going to use him to lead his people out of Egypt and free them from slavery. And then Moses asks God, well, if I go to the Israelites and tell them this and they don't believe me, who should I say sent me. Who's the one that I should say this is coming from? And God tells them to say, I am who I am. And in Hebrew, that's translated Yahweh. Well, it's more than that, but it's condensed to translate Yahweh. So by saying this, God is saying that, you know, he is the absolute existing one, the I am, the one who simply is. He was not created Nothing came before him. He's true to himself. He never changes. This is God's name, Yahweh. And the second term used for Lord, which is capital L, but the rest of the letters are in in lower cases, Adonai. And it refers to Lord in more of a ruler or king type sense. In ancient times, because Yahweh was God's personal name. The Israelites, out of fear of misusing it, would not even say this word, Yahweh. So when reading it, when they found this word you know, well, written in Scripture, they would often substitute the word Adonai. So if someone were to read the first verse of Psalm 8, you know, bank it 18 times, he or she might say something like, O Adonai, or Adonai. But when we understand the meaning of these two terms for Lord, what David is really saying is like, Holy Lord, you know, God, the great I am, you are our king. We worship you and look at you as the leader, as the ruler of your people. How majestic is your name in all the earth? In the next phrase, David states the reach of God's majesty, of God's greatness. When he writes, you have set your glory above the heavens. And what David's doing here is using a literary technique. By using both phrases, one that contains earth 
in all the earth, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then following that by saying, you know, in the heavens or above the heavens, David's using this technique that means that's basically presenting two extremes. And what it does is it incorporates everything between these two extremes. So basically, what David's saying is that all that God has created has been permeated with the majesty of God. There's nowhere on earth or in heaven where he is not Lord. He sustains all things. Everything depends on him. He is above all things. That's why Solomon, when dedicating the temple in 1 Kings, said to God, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. But we see in the psalm that God doesn't only display his greatness in creation. The psalm shows three other ways that God displays his, his, his greatness through what we would call counterintuitive ways in terms of how he relates to humans. You know, when a country's leader wants to show his or her strength against opposing forces, how do they usually do it? Through military might, right? Like North Korea's dictator is doing all he can to prove that he can launch a nuclear weapon. China seems to be militarizing the South China Sea. Our president seems to want to start a new arms race. He, you know, he said a couple of months ago, you know, let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass and outlast them all. So this is how man flexes his muscle. But look at verse 2 to see how God chooses to show his strength. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. He doesn't pick the strongest man to flex his might. He picks the weakest. The two words used in Hebrew for children and infants refer mostly to like nursing infants and toddlers, although sometimes older children can be included. It reminded me this week of the two kids that kind of crashed the BBC interview. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Did you guys see that? Did you guys, people are nodding their head. Okay, good. If you haven't seen it, um, go look at it. It's, it's really comical. I would, I would show it to you, but it seems like most of you saw it already, so we don't need to show it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's just great how these two kids walk in, and I love the older ones just like strolling in like this very nonchalantly. You know, you look at the, that older girl and, and the little infant coming in with his walker. These are the types of people God uses to defeat his enemies. He wins with weakness. And you say, how does he do it? Well, there's this great messianic time, which I want to show you. So in Matthew 21, Jesus is making his final entry into Jerusalem before his arrest and crucifixion. He enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. After entering Jerusalem, the first thing he does is go to the temple, and he drives out the corrupt money changers and the sellers there. And then it says in verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 21, it says this, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, 
they were indignant. So why were these religious leaders so upset with the children? Was it just that they were making a lot of noise and you know, acting disrespectful? Well, no, it's, it's more than that. More so than with the shouting, they were upset with what they were saying. For Hosanna to the son of David, this title, son of David, was the title for the Messiah. You know, the long-awaited Savior who would come to redeem his people. So the chief priests and the, and the teachers, you know, they, they couldn't stand that the children were saying this to Jesus. So they confront Jesus in verse 16. They're saying, do you hear what these children are saying? In other words, what they're saying is, do you hear that they're calling you the Messiah? How can you let them say such a thing about you? You know, and his first response is short, but just clear. He says in response, yes. Yes, I hear what they are saying. And yes, there's nothing wrong with it. They are correct in what they are saying. They are not mistaken. It's not blasphemy. I hear it, and I approve of it. And then at the end of verse 16, he asked them, Have you never read... And he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, Lord, have, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. So after Jesus recited that verse, Jesus' foes cannot respond. Sorry, I forgot to um, put the side. So after Jesus recited that verse, Jesus' foes cannot respond. He used the praise of the children to silence his enemies. And he used the praise of the children to confirm his identity. I am the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the King who will reign. You know, men will use weapons of war to subdue their enemies. God uses words out of children and infants. And then a second way God chooses to display his greatness is by choosing humans to empower when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what does it mean that you are mindful of him? The Hubble telescope has revealed that there are an estimated 100, mil, excuse me, 100 billion galaxies in the universe, with that number predictably rising as telescopic technology improves. As our students were staring out at the night sky for those couple of evenings at retreat into the depths of space, you know, it'd be easy to realize that, you know, we're just like specks in the universe. Yet God chose men to care for and honor. And David, as you can see in the outline, describes two ways which he does this. First, he empowers man by choosing them to reflect his image. It says in verse 5, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. How does God crown people with glory and honor? Well, this word glory is most often used to describe the glory of God. It refers more towards the inward, defining essence of who God is versus his external nature. And so in connecting this with the people, the psalmist is showing is that through man's unique relationship with God, with the creator, we come to share in our inner being the image and essence of the creator. We were, as it says in Genesis 1, created in the image of God. 
But then that raises another question, is what does being created in the image of God mean? Some people may think it has to do with physical form, but it's not that we bear God's image because God has two hands, two feet, you know, two eyes, and so on. Sure, God has appeared as a man, namely, you know, in Jesus, but God is not confined to a physical form. God is eternal spirit. So it's not through physical form that we represent his image. Others may think we bear the image of God because of our intellect and our ability to reason and and rationalize. And there's some truth to this, but it does not fully encapsulate the meaning, the full meaning of the image of God. And to understand better the meaning of the image of God, one Bible Bible commentator told this really, uh, or gave this really good example of an ancient statue that was discovered in a Syrian field in 1979. The statue was of an Assyrian governor, and there was an inscription underneath, written in dual ancient languages, which said, the image and likeness of the king. And what was noteworthy, or what is noteworthy about this statue, is that it represents the only text, the known text outside of the Bible, where these two terms, image and likeness, were used back then. And so what the situation was in this with this statue is that, you know, statues of kings, similar to this image, and the likeness of the governor, were set up in locations around the king's domain to act as a visible representation of the king for the people. So even though the actual king may not have been there physically, the statue served as a reminder of his authority and presence over the place where the statue stood. So in a similar way, If humans are created in the image and likeness of God, the statue discovery helps us understand our role. We are present in the world to represent and make known to the created order what God is like. In the Ten Commandments, you remember God forbids his people of making any image of him because humans are to be that image. We are to reflect that image in a way which God has revealed to us and made himself known to us. And then a second way God has chosen to empower humans, as you can see, is by choosing them to rule over his creation. Verses 6 to 8 of our psalms, You have made him ruler over the works of your hand. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds and, and so on. And in the Genesis account, when, what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 is, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. One could take these commands to subdue and rule as thinking God has given humans total authority and power to do what they wish with the created beings with other created beings. But this is not the case. Some commentators suggest that rather than rule, a better description would be exercise authority over. You see, in Scripture, representatives of kings are given the authority to, ex- or given authority to exercise authority over certain matters. So in this sense, it's not the representatives that have total authority to do what they want, they are limited as to the king's wishes. So similarly, when we are told 
to exercise authority over creation, we do not have total you know, freedom to do what we would want with creation. It's doing so as God's representatives, acting in such a way to benefit our king and bring creation under his authority, not ours. So when you think about it, you know, even though humans are just but specks of dust in the universe, God has chosen to display his greatness through empowering man, showing again he uses weakness more than strength to better display his greatness. And then a final way, the sound in the psalm that we see the greatness of God displayed is by choosing humans to be saved, by choosing man to be saved. For those who may be a little more familiar with scripture, uh, if you, when you were listening to Psalm 8 and, and we got the verses 4 to 6, they may have seemed familiar to you. And if it seemed familiar to you, it's probably because you remember it being quoted in the New Testament. And it was quoted in reference to Jesus. The passage references what's printed in your outline. Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8, quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6 exactly. And then after quoting this part of the psalm, the author of Hebrew adds, in verses 9 and 10, in putting everything under him, excuse me, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So though man has been cast to exercise authority over creation, because of sin, man has failed to fully live up to that task. Humans cannot completely subdue all of creation and put it under the rule of the Creator alone. Jesus has come as the Son of Man, another title for the Messiah, to do what humans cannot, to live a perfect life and die as a representative. As it said in Hebrews 2, verse 10, He tasted death for everyone, so that man would not be subject to the wages of sin, which is death, as it says in Romans 6, 23. He is the one who truly rules over creation to display the majesty of God. As it says at the end of verse 8 of Hebrews, we do not see everything presently subject to him, but he will return one day to consummate his reign and complete what is still lacking. You know, when you think about it, God didn't have to save humans. God would be rightly justified if he didn't save any of us. In fact, we are the only ones that he saved. Later on, if you read Hebrews 2, um, towards the end, it talks about how God became man to save man. And it implies that he didn't become an angel because angels can't be saved. There's no salvation for angels but he became man just to save man. And this is out of his love and grace. God freely chose to provide a way of salvation for mankind. God has allowed humans to experience the benefits of knowing him personally 
and being in a relationship with him. So as you reflect on Psalm 8, may you be humbled as you consider all that God has done on your behalf. As David wrote, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? And may this cause a spirit of praise to also rise up within you as you consider how great and majestic our God is. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May you resonate with David as he writes this. And maybe most importantly, may this lead you to remember your responsibility as one who is empowered by God to reflect his image and rule over all creation. You know, there's so much brokenness in our world today because of the consequences of sin. As one commentator wrote, it's little wonder that when the world looks at the human condition and even the example or lack thereof of the Christian community, so many come to question whether God even exists. So how do people see you as the image and likeness of God? What picture of God do your classmates or co-workers or neighbors have because of your presence among them? Do they see how great God is? How are you telling others about the greatness of God? As one commentator concluded about the psalm, Psalm 8 calls us to catch an awe-filled glimpse of the majesty of the Creator God in order to renew our sense of wonder and purpose to be the image of God that our world desperately needs to know. So may we recapture that sense of wonder and awe so that we can fulfill this purpose to be the image of God that our world needs to know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great psalms and how we've seen your glory and majesty displayed not only in this psalm, but in all the psalms that we've looked at. Lord, we are humbled when we think of the price that you paid by sending your Son to bear the full weight of our sin so that we could be saved. God, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? Lord, we don't deserve all that you have blessed us with. But we are grateful and thank you for your grace and love and mercy upon us. May you etch these truths in our hearts and may it impel us to go forth to be the image of God that you desire for us to be so that others can see your greatness in our life displayed, especially to those who do not know you yet. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.